Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Alrighty, like I said, a kind of a familiar story here in an, in an a, uh, uh, interesting incident in the life of Jesus with his disciples. Let's uh, get a big idea here. This is what we're looking at each week, a different aspect of the way of Jesus. And here, Mark 4, 35 through 41, we see the way, going to write this down, this is what we're studying today, the way Jesus developed, the way Jesus developed. That's what we see happening here in this passage with Jesus in relationship to his disciples. He is developing his disciples, which is what Jesus is always doing. Development is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to begin a journey and to continue on a journey of development, to grow. Paul says, Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, he goes, I haven't arrived. I haven't yet attained you know, peak development, that would be pretty prideful to say. Like, I am the peak developed Christian. How's it going? Paul's like, no, I, I'm not going to say that. I've got a long way to go. But Paul says, but I'm going. I'm growing. I'm, I'm pursuing that which for Christ is pursued in me. I'm developing. This is what God is always up to in our lives. At any given moment, God is always looking to develop us, which is tough because that's not always our priority. Do you know what I mean? Like, my priority in any given day is not always the development of my character. It's usually the development of my circumstances. <laughs> like, like, God, would you develop this thing to work out this way and not that way? But we see this is God's priority for us. His primary concern is not just what's happening around us. It's not just what we're walking through, but it's who we are and who we're becoming. There's three specific almost targets that you get in Scripture that sort of lay out a vision for how God is developing us. This, this is echoed all throughout the New Testament of the work of the Spirit in the life of a church and the life of a Christian. You see this as one of the main, the, these three attributes as, as kind of the main three uh, focuses of Jesus' discipleship with his followers. Is he, He's seeking to develop Christians who are filled with faith, hope, and love. Like this is what God is always up to in our lives, taking us closer and growing us deeper in faith, hope, and love. Faith is the ability to trust God, developing our trust for God. Hope is the ability to expect God, to, to expect Him, to be confident that what He says is going to happen. You expect it. It's a confident expectation. Love is the ability to reflect God. So God is always working to develop us to be people who trust Him, who expect Him, and who reflect him in faith, hope, and love. In this passage that we read, the primary attribute that's being developed into the life of his disciples is the attribute of faith. Trusting God. That's the thing that Jesus is developing in his followers. Now, as we read, one of the most interesting classrooms for faith that we've ever seen, right? The classroom is a thunderstorm. All right, so this is, this is important to say. This is where the disciples are going to learn faith. They don't learn faith in the traditional AC classroom where you hear the information, right? And then you go, oh, I've learned that. Now, by the way, Jesus has already done that. In fact, this, 
this classroom of the thunderstorm follows the more formal classroom where Jesus has been. Remember Mark 4, Nate was here a couple weeks ago teaching on parables. Do you guys remember that a few weeks ago? Jesus was teaching his disciples. It was like church, like this, right? But we all know that this isn't really where we learn the things of Jesus, right? I mean, it is. It's where the seed is planted in the words of Jesus. It's where the truth is deposited. But it's in the classroom of life that, that learning really happens. Is that not true? Like whatever field you may be in, this is true of almost anything. I, you know, the most common thing that I think of is skateboarding with my son Judah because it's something, it's my discipleship journey I've been on with my son, you know, is um, raising him up to be a shredder in the name of the Lord. And so, so you know, I, I do as much coaching as I can. I do as much instruction. And, but at the end of the day, the way that you learn how to skateboard is you fall. <laughs> it's like how you get hurt. It's like the path to successful skateboarding is injury and falling. And, and, and so it's by doing it. That, that's how you learn anything. Like I'm in this new phase of life now. I'm in my 30s now. It's a, the skateboard is kind of hung up on the wall. If I go to the skateboard, it's got the skate park with Judah. It's got big wheels on it. And I just kind of cruise around for five minutes and then I sit down and I film him. Um, no longer trying to relive my glory days. I've relived them a couple times at the skate park to the point where I'm like, There's, this is not worth it. I'm going to die. So... Um, <laughs> I picked up something much more dangerous in my 30s, golf, all right? What a loser. He used to be like a street skater, and now he's a golfer. What a loser, right? But, and golf is the same thing. I can't tell you how many hours of YouTube I've watched uh, with golf. Like, just do this, try this, turn your body this way, think this way, think happy thoughts, you know, and, and it'll all work out. You know, it turns out no matter how many videos I watch, I'm not any better. That's what I've learned. Like, I thought that the more YouTube videos I watch, the better at golf I'll be. The truth, the truth is that the real classroom of learning happens in life experience. And here, we see with the disciples, the way that their faith is built. This is really interesting. Jesus has taught them about faith, but now they have the opportunity to grow in faith through their trial. Through the thunderstorm. This is all throughout scripture, right? That this is where faith is really produced. Um, it's James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, a familiar scripture that says, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, different storms that arise in your life, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing patience or perseverance. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see this? This is what trials do. They, they produce a learning that the classroom could never give us. That's what we see happening here with the disciples. Now, the storm is what arises to challenge their faith. And, and here's really what I, what I want us to think about with trials and faith. Trials and storms, the, the real classroom, is where what I know about God conceptually has the opportunity to become what I believe about him in a real deep way. Does that make sense? It's one thing to know things about God. Like, this is Jesus. The disciples at this point have spent some time with him. They're learning about him. But now through a storm, they have an opportunity to really go from knowing to actually believing if these things are true or not. That's what life and that's what these learning experiences will do. The developmental potential of trials. Now, this trial that comes into the life of the disciples, this various trial... It's in the form of a, a literal windstorm and thunderstorm. As they're, by the way, as they're following Jesus, like they're doing the thing he told them to do, that's when the storm shows up, which is really interesting. And from the context, and many scholars would agree with this, this is a, a storm that is likely the result of spiritual opposition and resistance. 
The way that Jesus, at the end of it, do you remember where Jesus, it says he rebuked the storm? That's the same word that's used for Jesus rebuking a demonic spirit in Mark chapter 1. He's speaking against a spiritual force. Now, we're going to see that Jesus and the disciples watch up on the beach in Mark chapter 5, directly in the face of the embodiment of evil and, and demon possession. And Jesus is going to be used, next week we're going to see, Jesus is going to be used by God to free and deliver this man who's been bound by a spirit for years. And so there's this real spiritual force at play. And this, this storm is, you could say the source of it in many ways is the enemy, is spiritual opposition. But, you know, I think that's where we can get caught up sometimes with our storms. Like who, who sent the storm, right? Did I send the storm? Is this my mistake? Did I, did I blow it? You ever like got yourself into your own storm? Like, that's my storm. I, you can, Hurricane Andrew is what you can name it, you know? Like, that's my storm. Or, or you're like, is this God? Is, is this like his, like Jonah kind of a thing, you know? Or is this, is this the devil? Is this the devil? Like, whose storm is it? Now, we're, I think we can sometimes spend a lot of wasted hours trying to solve how I got in the pit rather than saying, God, get me out of this pit that I've been in of despair. I mean, the only way forward is forward and looking ahead to what God is doing. And so in this case, I do believe this is a demonic opposition. But nonetheless, every trial, regardless of the source, has the same developmental potential for your faith. Every trial, every storm, regardless of who started it, let's stop playing that game. Regardless of where it came from, every storm, every trial has the opportunity to produce faith if, notice this, if you let it. But let patience have its perfect work, if you allow it. Now, it's pretty interesting to see that the disciples are going to have, this is really interesting here, right, in this passage, that they're the ones that are going to have their faith built in a storm. Because the disciples, I want you to hear this closely, are professional what? Fishermen. These, these guys are pro-boaters. And, and this is truly usually where tri what trials do to us, like the disciples that we saw here. What trials do is they get us to the point to where our own resources and abilities aren't enough. You ever been there? Like my own ability to figure my way out of this problem, my own ability to solve my way out of this dilemma, I just, I'm uh, left dry of my own resources. Do you know what I'm saying? That's the disciples. Like they are, as professional fishermen, they know the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. If anyone is, has this skillful ability to navigate storms, it's these fishermen. But their own skill isn't enough. Faith is going to be required. And maybe you, you've been there before where you're like, I have nothing left to do except trust God. You ever been there? I have nothing left. Like, I, I don't have enough. So here we go. i got to trust God. And that's what we see this storm producing. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt said it well, right? That a smooth sea never made, what? Skilled sailor. All right? And so that's what we see Jesus doing here. So... Um, let's look at a couple lessons that we saw here in this passage of this work of Jesus' development of these disciples in the storm. All right, let's do that. A couple lessons of development. Jesus is developing the faith of his disciples in this storm, this, this storm of spiritual opposition. And there's a few key insights that we get out of it. Let's look back at this passage. First thing we saw here was it says, On the same day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, it's Jesus' idea, to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 15 miles long. It's, se it's seven miles wide. At this point, geographically, it's about a five-mile gap between where, where Jesus is and where they need to go. This is Jesus' idea. 
saying, let's cross over to the other side. Jesus has been teaching, by the way, uh, on a boat. He's on a boat, right? And he's out there teaching about the kingdom from this boat, using the, probably the space because the crowds were always thronging around him. So he had a boat prepared that he could stand on and preach to the, to the beaches and using kind of the natural acoustics of the ocean. And so he, he's preaching and he's exhausted. And now he says, okay, guys, now we're going to cross over. It's his idea. Let's now stay in the boat and let's move this way across to the other side. Now, when I think about faith and I think about storms, when I think about this storm specifically, at the end of the day, this is the thing that is being, you know, for the disciples, this is the thing that they're being tested to trust. Do I actually believe that we're going to get to the other side where Jesus said we're going to go, right? It's his idea. So this is what's actually being, like, we read the part where, where Peter goes, we're perishing. We're dying. We're not going to make it. Well, clearly that showed that you didn't believe what Jesus said. He didn't say, hey, let us cross over and perish on the way to the other side, right? And this is certainly, I think, as well for our own lives, this is the thing that's often tested in the storm. Do I believe, despite the opposition I'm facing, despite the storm I'm in, do I believe that God is going to get me where I need to be? Do I believe that I'm not going to be left hung and dry without him? Do I believe that he'll get me to the other side? And sometimes that's a long process. Sometimes that's a... Sometimes there's storms. The duration of some storms can last years. And you're left going, Jesus, I, you, it was, you said we, that I would get there. But here I am still in the middle of the ocean. And this is where faith is really tested, isn't it? Do I believe that you're going to take me where you said I'm going to go? You're going to bring me there. Now, we can make this very circumstantial. But I think of this a lot just in terms of the hope we have, not just in this life, but in heaven. This is really the other side that we've got to hope in. Let us cross over to the other side. You know, there's another side of life. Do we know this for the Christian? It's the other side of eternity that we're promised as followers of Jesus. An eternity that's so glorious and great that Paul says that the sufferings of this world can't even be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. So do I trust Jesus despite what I walk through? As it, This storm may last longer than I anticipated. Do I trust that in the end... Here's the thing that we really got to learn to trust. I'm going to be okay. Do I trust that I'm going to be okay? Do I trust that, I'm, that you're going to have me, that you're going to take care of me? I mean, that's really, at the end of the day, our biggest fear. It's like, am I going to be all right? Am I going to be in your arms? Is everything going to be safe? Is there another side that I'll arrive at? I love that Peter encourages us with this hope in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us or cause us to come to life again, be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a really great event. We're going to study it next year. It's called the resurrection of Jesus. Next year on the calendar, okay? It says that we're born, through the resurrection, we're born again, and notice what we're born again to, to an inheritance incorruptible. I love that. A real, material, eternal inheritance that, that, that's incorruptible. Nothing can touch it. That's the hope. It's undefiled. It does not fade away. You know, this is the same language as Jesus, right? Lay up your treasures in heaven where nothing can break in and mess with that thing. No moth, no rust, no thieves. It's secure under the watch of Jesus, our eternal hope. It doesn't fade away. I love this. Reserved in heaven for you. That's the promise. That there are eternal reservations. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When you get to heaven, you say, you know, Andrew, party of one. Here, I'm here. 
Through the resurrection of Jesus, I've got eternal reservations. It's set. It's sealed for eternity. It's reserved. Now, it's one thing to, to, to believe this. To go, God, I know you've got some stuff for me up there. But here's, here's the second part of hope. It's not just the reservations, but it's God's promise preservation of my life in the meantime. Reservations in heaven, preservation here on earth to get to the other side. Reserved in heaven for you, notice this, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in last time. Isn't that, a, isn't that an, an awesome promise? Like, I'm encouraged to know that there's some things ahead of me in Jesus. I'm even more encouraged to know that God is going to preserve my life and I'll actually get there. I'm actually going to see Jesus face to face. I'm actually going to make it. Not only do I have reservations, but I have the promise of God's preservation of my life. He's Listen, he's not just keeping some things for you ahead. He's keeping you right now as you are through faith. He's keeping you. He's preserving you. He has your life in his hand through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. That's the first thing that, again, that's really being tested when Jesus says, let us cross over to the other side. Do I really trust and believe? Here's what's being tested in my trial, that Jesus is able to get me and take me where I need to go. What's really interesting is Jesus, we see in the story, has no struggle to believe this. Jesus is so, like, Jesus knows the, like the way that he goes out is as the suffering servant in Isaiah. You know, the Messiah doesn't die on, the boat, on a boat for our sins. You know what I'm saying? Je- Jesus is confident that, there, that there's a future ahead of him. His life is in the hands of his father. So, so much so that he's, he's taking a siesta in the storm. He's, he's like, I'm good. I'm just going to sleep. You guys good? I'm just going to take a nap. Right? So, so Jesus has, has confidence that God is going to take them where he needs to go. And, and do we have that same confidence? Notice the next verse. It tells us this. Jesus says, let's cross over. And so the disciples, it says, it says that they left the multitude and they took Jesus along in the boat. It says, as he was, meaning it's fresh off of preaching and teaching. Jesus is just as he was, as exhausted as he is. He's been doing a whole, you know, you know, like seminar on the beach with Jesus, the Jesus conference on the shoreline of Galilee. And he's exhausted, and he says, let's cross over. And so they leave the multitude, and this is so huge, they take him along in the boat as he was. I, if I had more time, that's, there's a whole sermon on just taking Jesus, by the way, as he is, versus how we want him to be. Jesus, I'll let you in my boat if you stop saying this about my life and my sin. Jesus, I'll let you in the boat if you just, you're a little controversial and it's a little harsh and you're causing me to have to repent of things. And so I'm going to take you as long as you change this. But notice this, they took him in the boat. This is salvation, by the way, is found when you take Jesus as he is. I am that I am, not as I want you to be, but as you are. Who you are is all I need you to be. That's the truth, despite what I want you to be. So they take him in the boat as he is. It says, and there's also little boats who are with him. Just, you know, around the boat, trying to keep up. Now, the boat that they're on, that's not true. They didn't have motor boats back then, sorry. But nonetheless, um, the, the boat that they're in here is likely, um, I only know this not because I'm a fisherman or that I'm like a Galilean scholar, okay? I read this. That it's likely like a 20-foot boat that fit his squad of disciples on. And uh, it's, it's a, their fishing boat, likely, that, that they're using here now to transport Jesus across the sea. This is what they're going to go into the storm with. Now, I, I want to point out something that this uh, little insight that this verse shows us about the storms that we get into. 
Uh, What we see in the story here, Jesus being in the boat with them, it it contrasts it, I think, on purpose. There's a boat that Jesus is in, and then there's other little boats that Jesus is not in. And this is a principle that we see in Scripture. I I guess we can call it like the passenger principle, um, where there's a lot of... There's a lot of like boats and water stories in, in the Bible, isn't there? And so you got Noah, you got Jonah, you got Paul. It's a big, big theme is, you know, the boat of life and all the trials that come. You know, one thing that you see kind of throughout those stories, you see this thread, the similarity that called the, we'll call it the passenger principle, that the hope of survival of the passengers has everything to do with who's in the boat with them. Have you noticed this? So like, let's give you an example. Jonah. Not a good passenger to have on your boat. No, he's the reason why there's a storm that's about to kill everybody. Okay? You know, make him walk the plank. Jonah, you got to get off the boat. It's true. It's true. Um, the passenger principle. You know, the passenger principle causes you to ask this question. Like, when you look at your life, who's in your boat? You know, who's, who's in company with me as I'm walking this road of life? And especially, who am I allowing in this Storm with me. What sort of counsel and advice are they giving me? You know, who's in my boat is going to directly determine the result of my life and where I'm headed. You know, you got a guy like Jonah. You don't want Jonah in your boat. You're worse off if Jonah's in your boat. In fact, that's what we see in the story of Jonah. He's rebelling against God. He takes a boat the opposite direction of Nineveh to Tarshish. And while he's in that boat, a storm arises and the, the pagan... <laughs> The pagan boaters and passengers, they, they're the ones that realize that we're in this situation because of this, this disobedient Hebrew. That's always the worst, right? Like when you're, you're so far from God that the world is rebuking you. Like, aren't you a Christian? Why are you causing all this trouble? We don't even believe in God, but we think you're disobeying him, you know? Like, that's what happened. And that's what happened with Jonah. And he's like, yeah, this, I've made your life worse by being in the boat with you. That's essentially it. Now, there's a great contrast in the Bible between Jonah and Paul, the end of the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. I, I pray one day God leads us to study the book of Acts. I think he will. And, and at the end of Acts, Acts 27 and 28, Paul is a prisoner on his way to Rome. And God gave Paul a dream, a vision, that he was going to stand before uh, the emperor. He was going to go before Rome. Uh, he was going to make it to Rome. And so on his way to Rome, Paul was a prisoner on a boat that started facing horrible winds and a horrible storm. And so bad that the boat shipwrecks. It, it, it breaks apart, and it's the first time that surfing is mentioned in the Bible. Everyone gets to shore on these wooden boards. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> Read it. It's a great story. Um, but, but everyone's perishing, but Paul, is, Paul gets up, and he, as the boat is like, as everyone's like, we've run out of, we can't, we've tried everything, we've tried to survive, it looks like we're all going to die and drown out here. Paul's like, men, listen to me. I've got good news for you. I'm on your boat. That's essentially what he says. And God has called me, here, and, and you don't have to worry. God's going to preserve my life. In fact, you're going to survive because I'm on this boat. And God told me I'm going to end up in this city, and so don't worry about it. We might have to swim a little bit. It might be cold, but we're going to be okay, all right? Again, who is in your boat? This is such an important question to ask as we consider our life, as we consider, and this is a really corny way to say it. We said this a few years ago. We talked about your fellow ship. Get it? So. Let's take a drink of water. Hold on. Let you pause and reflect on that deep spiritual concept. Genuinely, though, who's in your boat? You know, it's important to evaluate who's in your boat. It's important just to stop sometimes and go, 
I gotta be thoughtful about who I'm allowing into this trial with me, who's, who's the loudest voice walking through this thing. And it's important to go, hey, I'm really thank like when's the last time you looked at some people that are in your fellowship, your community group, right? And you said to them, hey, thanks for being in this boat with me. I just wanna tell you that despite what's going on in my life, I'm better because you're here with me. There's something to that, knowing who's in your boat. Now, it's interesting. The passenger principle, listen to this, it becomes all that greater when Jesus is in your boat, doesn't it? It's one thing to be like, I got a good Christian brother in my boat. <laughs> it's a whole other thing to know that Jesus is in your boat. That's the contrast here. Um, everything's going to be okay with these disciples because Jesus is in the boat. I mean, that's, can, I, can I tell you this? That's really the question at the end of the day right now, whatever you're facing, whatever storm you've been through, you are in or you will go through, the, the ultimate question is not if you're in a trial, but is Jesus with you? That's the question you have to ask. We could ask it this way, right? Is Jesus in your boat? <laughs> is he with you in what you're going through? If Jesus is with you, that's all you need. That's really all you need. That's what, that's, this is like the main theme in the scriptures, Anytime God's people are facing adversity or they're facing a challenge, you know, I love the case with Moses where he comes to God and God's like, I'm sending you into a, a really tough situation. You're going to do battle with Egypt and Pharaoh. And, and Moses is like, God, that's, he goes, who am I? That's what Moses says. Who am I? And God responds, he says, I'm with you. That's what God says. He doesn't go, Moses, you are awesome. You're the brightest star in Israel and I picked you because you're the sharpest tool in the shed. You're just amazing. Go shine bright. No, he goes, Moses, here's who you are. You're someone I'm with. And that's enough. Who am I, God? I'm with you. I'm with you. And all throughout the scriptures, you see then that passed to Joshua. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I'm with you. What you need is not new circumstances. What you need is an awareness of God's presence with you in the storm. An awareness that God is with you. Even right now, Jesus said this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be with you. This is the recognition of the psalmist when he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the thunderstorm of peril, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Do we know the power that comes with knowing and recognizing the presence of God with us in our boat? This is what should make all the difference for the disciples, God's assurance, God's presence, Jesus' presence with them. I mean, for the disciples, they should have just been like, okay, there's a bad storm, but like, oh, there's Jesus, the Son of God. We're going to be okay. <laughs> Jesus is with me. Now, I think that this question, again, is Jesus in your boat with your storm? Uh, on one hand, you could ask this question to, to encourage yourself with hope, but I think there's another way and another tone to ask this question that should cause you to be thoughtful and sober about your life. There are some storms that we find ourselves in um, because that's the nature of life and there's spiritual opposition and we're following the Lord. There, there's storms of, as we said, like the disciples here, there's storms of resistance. There's other storms like Jonah's that you see in scripture that the, the storms are there out of an act of God's mercy because someone is rebelling against God. And, you know, you could say Jesus wasn't in Jonah's boat. <laughs> and sometimes God will send not just, listen, sometimes the enemy will send storms of opposition but sometimes in, the great, in his grace, God will send storms of correction into our lives when we are doing life without him. It's a great question. Is Jesus in my boat? Like, I'm facing opposition right now. Is, is this 
God-ordained, or, or is this resistance? I mean, and, and by the way, I don't have the answer for you for that. That's between you and the Lord. That's between your, the other people in your fellowship, right? Talk to them. Get their advice. Have them speak into what you're walking through. You, sometimes this is a journey where you're, you're trying to navigate this. Lord, is this opposition, is it you trying to get my attention? Is this the enemy trying to give, by the way, that's the hardest thing we can do too is like the other side of this. I know I'm confusing you guys, but just keep following me, right? The other side of this is we go, oh, there's opposition. It must not be the Lord. You ever done that? Right, this isn't what God would call me to do because it's hard. Well, don't think that either, you know. Uh, certainly, there's clear evidences of this in Scripture that often when God calls you to something, there's going to be resistance. What I'm trying to get you to do is to think thoughtfully and prayerfully about this question with your life. Is Jesus in your boat? Is he in that decision? Is he in that direction? Is there room for Jesus in your life? Is there room for him? Such an important thing to think about. Now, here, the disciples, they said, yeah, Jesus is in my boat. This is spiritual resistance that we're facing. That's what they could say. Or they could have said, well, Jesus is in my boat. Therefore, I shouldn't face any storms, right? I mean, I've got, the reason I'm in storms is because Jesus isn't in my boat, but he's in my boat now, so smooth sailing from here on out. I got Jesus in my boat. And to that, the next verse says, that a great windstorm arose. It says, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling with water. This is what ends up happening. Um, this is common for the Sea of Galilee, the second lowest sea on planet Earth, over 600 feet below sea level, incredible depths that contrast with the heights of the mountains around the Sea of Galilee. You have the cool air above, you have the warm air below, and, you know, I'm not Corey Pachonis, I'm not a pilot, I don't know what I'm talking about here with winds and drifts and all that fun stuff, drifts, but nonetheless, what you get is these these, these cold mountain airs that sweep down below rather swiftly, and, and literally, windstorms will arise out of nowhere. There's a suddenness to the storm. It comes out of nowhere. And you could go from, from flat seas. It's like, you know, the ocean of Florida, right? When a storm comes, like we have no waves. Oh, a cruise ship. We got some waves, all right? It's kind of what happens, right, in Florida when you're, when you're trying to be a surfer. But in this case, a sudden storm arises. And, and this can be sometimes, can I say, this is sometimes the hardest part about trials, how sudden they can be. You ever had that? Where it's like, whoa. And so, you know, I don't think we can be fully prepared for unexpected, surprising trials. That's just the nature of the suddenness of trials. But there is something to expecting what Jesus did promise. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, he said, right? Now, the suddenness of trials, are, they're going to hit. You're going to feel them. When, when the storm arises out of nowhere, it, it, is going, it, is, it does have the power to affect us. But there's something to knowing that the sudden trials are coming. Like, it's one thing to not expect someone to jump out and scare you. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it's like a whole, whole other thing. But when you kind of know someone is trying to scare you, my kids love to do this. It's still scary, by the way. It's like, ah, you're almost a little bit like that. But there's this expectancy that's prepared for what's coming. And Jesus wants his disciples to have that. He's saying, you know, in me, here's the thing that can never be taken away from you. In me, you can have peace. But in this world, it's kind of the two zip codes of the Christian, right? In Jesus and in this world at the same time. In this world, there will be sudden windstorms. So expecting them can enable us not to be so caught off guard when they come, when they arise, when you fall, right, into various trials, when it happens. Not if you fall, but when the storm comes. As you, as you have heard it said, 
Uh, every Christian at any given point is either coming out of a trial, is in a trial, or is headed for a trial. It's just true. We're all at different seasons, and hopefully we're stewarding that well. Now, I want you to notice this. As the storm comes, let's look at the three elements of this windstorm. You have three elements. You have the wind, you have the waves, and you have the water. You have the wind that arises. This is kind of the source of it. The enemy likely is the, the source of this storm, causing opposition to the disciples. He sends a great wind that causes the waves to beat against the boat. The result of the waves is that the boat is filling with water. You have the wind, the waves, and the water. When I think about the trials that we face that the enemy uh, even can bring into our lives, I think these three things are key parts of how trials derail us. Let's think about this first thing, the wind. Have you ever been tossed around by the wind of your trial? Like the waves? This is the language of Ephesians 4, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. This is, the, this is kind of the main goal of Satan's attacks, whether it's Job, whether it's God's people. That The primary thing that Satan is trying to get us to do through our trials is to question what's true about God. To blow the wind that, that tosses us all around to where we don't, we don't have a grip on anything. Not, not only do we not have faith, but we don't even know what we're trusting in at all. There's nothing to place faith in. We're, we're, we're blown around, tossed around by the wind. The next step is often not just the wind, but the wind that's, that's tossing us around. It gives way to the waves. It goes from the wind, and then it moves to the waves. Now there's another story of a storm in scripture that doesn't involve Jesus in the boat with the disciples, but it involves the disciples in the boat without Jesus. But Jesus is where? He's barefoot water skiing, right? No, sorry, that was irreverent. Jesus is walking on the, on the sea to the disciples. Barefoot, all right? He's walking on the ocean. The disciples, and we know the story, Peter displays great faith. Like, we always rag on Peter. We're like, that guy sank. It's like, yeah, after he walked on water, okay? Like, have you ever walked on water? So you can't be like, that person sank, loser. They were walking on water, okay? Anyway, Peter, we know, he gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk on water. But as I mentioned, Peter does begin to sink. Now, what is it that causes Peter to sink? I love the way that the message translation says it. It says, jumping out of the boat, Peter walked on the water to Jesus. But when he looked Keyword, when he looked down at the waves, churning beneath his feet, he lost his nerve and started to sink. He cried, Master, save me. Isn't this where we begin to lose our nerve in trial? When the waves just get larger and larger, they loom larger even than God. And fear begins to arise. So you have the wind that begins to blow us around. What do I believe? What's true about God? The cunningness of deceitful plotting. And then there's this this. This effect that trials have to where we begin to fear. We, we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus and we're focused instead on the obstacles that are around us and fear can grip us. You know, faith and fear, it's directly connected to focus. What are you looking at? Where's your attention? Scriptures say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul says, even though our outward man is perishing, he says, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day through the trial. We have an opportunity here. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's so beautiful. He says this, while we do not look at the things which are seen. This is where we start sinking. When you're, if your eyes are only on the natural, only on that person and what they said, if your eyes are only on the physical realm, looking at the things which are seen, you're steeped in secularism and hopelessness outside of your own solutions. But as a Christian, we look at those things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So the storm arises. There's the wind that, blow, that wants to toss me around in my faith, trusting in who God is. There's the size of the waves that arise around me, that are jockeying for my attention, causing me to revere what's around me over the God who's in control of the storm. And then lastly, there's the water. As the wind comes and the waves rise, water starts to spill into the boat. It's not what you want. You know, ideally, you want a boat that's floating, is what I've learned. And so this is problematic, okay? Because the water should be under the boat, not in the boat. And so this is, this is difficult for the disciples. The, the water is filling. And I think, again, what a great visual for what trials can do to our faith. Toss us around, cause us to fear, and then begin to fill us with anxiety and overwhelming hopelessness, like I'm going to drown. You ever been there in a trial? I'm drowning, I'm sinking, there's no way out. What a contrast to Romans 15, 13, where Paul says that may the God of hope, notice the word, fill you. Just as the waters of your trial can be filling your life, instead of allowing the waters to fill you with anxiety, allow the hope of God to fill you. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Here's the, here's the word again, in believing, in faith that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like maybe some of you, with whatever you're walking through, you just need to let God speak this over your life. May the God of hope fill you. May he just fill you with all hope, with all joy and peace in believing, that you may, may you in your trial right now, despite what's going on around you, despite how strong the wind is blowing, despite how large the waves are looming, despite how much water you're taking on, sometimes it's like, I'm taking on more water than I have the ability to manage here. And just say, God, would you fill me with your hope? I'm going to get my eyes off of what's around me. Help me abound in hope. This is what God's doing in your trial. He's surfacing your faith to build it, to put it back upon him. A really interesting picture here. Now, um, we read this, right? That the storm arises, great windstorm. Mosquito, watch out, get out of here. Beelzebub, get out of my face, all right? <laughs> a great windstorm arose, and the waves are beating on the boat, so it's already filling. And come on, don't you love Jesus? He's sleeping. Deep sleeper. Jesus is a deep sleeper. He's sleeping. Now, anybody else like this, by the way? How many guys, let's do this. How many guys are light sleepers, light sleepers? Like, if the, if the street light's on two blocks away, you're waking up, you know what I mean? How many of you guys deep sleepers? Anybody like me? Me too. It's problematic in marriage when you have kids that are crying in the middle of the night. It's like, did you hear that? It's like, am I alive? Hello? What? Oh. Oh, I wasn't dead. Hi. Right? So when we had our third child, Penny, um, it was the third one. You know, at the third one, you're like, this is easy. You just go in and... I'm joking, obviously I'm the husband, so it's not that hard for me, okay? But, but 
you know, you kind of have a routine. You go, it's like, it's just a, it just was a little bit more predictable. And I got really comfortable. It was like literally physically comfortable in the room. I was like, well, it's, we're going to wait. You know, the last couple kids took forever. You know, Judah was like super late. Like, you know, Evie was a little faster, but, you know, we, we don't want to be too crazy about, you know, we're just going to chill. We're going to go. That was my mode. Just chill. Just going to sleep in the storm, you know? And um, I remember the last, the last one with Penny. I remember falling asleep. That's what, I remember that. I remember that part. And I remember then being woken up. I remember waking up because my thought was like, you know, in a couple hours, they'll come in. They'll be like, hey, I think it's time to start pushing, you know. But what happened instead was I get woken up and there's nurses everywhere. I'm like, why are they messing with my sleeping quarters? Like, it, like I'm in the room. Brittany's there on the bed. And Brittany's like, hey, we're having a baby right now. And I remember being like, I should wake up, shouldn't I? You know, like. And this is, she's like, do you care that we're having a baby? You're, now, this is not the same thing as Jesus, okay? Jesus is not um, unaware of what's going on around him because he's sleeping. That's not what ha what's happening here. In fact, that's what the disciples are assuming. Jesus, instead, he, he's resting in the peace of the Lord. He's not like Andrew in the, you know, in the labor and delivery room, okay? Um, Jesus... Just a great, you know, the, the blessing of, of rest for those who are at peace. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you know what it's like to sleep with You know what it's like to not sleep because you're not at peace? So Jesus here is just at rest in the Lord. We see the peace that Jesus has. And notice what the disciples do. As Jesus is, is at peace, the disciples are freaking out. What a contrast. The disciples go, we're perishing. Jesus goes, I'm sleeping, right? Now, the truth of Scripture is this. This is what the Bible calls us to do in our, in our storm. I, I love Philippians chapter 4. We know this verse. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I want you to see this. And the peace of God, it's God's peace. It's, his, it's the peace He has in the storm, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see the idea here? The idea here is um, Jesus' peace in the storm should be our peace in the storm. Like whatever you're going through right now, can I just give you good news? God is at peace. You go, well, I'm not. That's okay. You're not the source of your peace. It's, it's the peace of God that you need. Not the peace of your ability to navigate this, being fine, being calm, being cool, being collective. The truth is we all freak out, don't we? Life gets hard. And our ability to cope with life is even at times even harder. Our hope is not our own peace. Our hope is God's peace. His peace should inform my peace. He's at peace. Now, sometimes what can happen is, you know, and this is Jesus, right? He's at peace. But this is what happens. You ever had this happen where, like, people can, people can mistake your calmness and peace for indifference. You must not care because you're not freaking out like everybody else. Didn't you know the news told you you have to freak out about everything? Why aren't you freaking out? You don't care, right? It's like, no, I'm just at peace. Yeah, right. You don't care, right? It's like, now, that's what they're doing here. They're mistaking Jesus' peace for indifference. They, they think because he's not freaking out that he must not care. That's what they're asking him. But, you know, and as much as we can kind of rag on the disciples, like, let me say this. The disciples are learning Jesus at this point, like we all are. We haven't arrived they're new to Jesus in a lot of ways. And by the way, we all, despite how long you've been walking with Jesus, we're all to some degree new to Jesus. We're always learning something new about him. 
There's always something about him that we haven't trusted in enough. There's always new things to know. But certainly in this case, they're just a couple months into following him. And so they're learning about him. And they're asking, does he care? And this is such a genuine question. I mean, God, are you there? God, do you care about what I'm walking through? Now that, let me say this. This is actually, it's so great that they asked this question. Because in a moment, Jesus is going to show his power over the storm. But this is really the thing that gets to be revealed about Jesus. He goes on to say, don't you have any faith? Do you not trust me? The main thing that this trial was able to do was to give these disciples a fresh glimpse of the character of Jesus, to see who he really is, to see him in a new light. I thought I knew you, but then I walked through this trial and I wonder who you were and the journey took me here. Are you who I thought you were? Do you really care? And on the other side of it is a greater faith than that truth if we allow Jesus to reveal himself for who he really is. It says that Jesus is sleeping. The disciples are saying, do you not care? This is interesting. This is actually likely a quote out of Psalm 44, 23. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? God, why are you slumbering? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Now, can I give you good news? God is never napping in your trial. He's always awake and he's aware of what you're walking through. He sees you. He knows you. Jesus in his humanity is taking a nice siesta here. But Jesus is, is, the Bible says that he always lives to intercede for his people. Isn't that awesome? He always lives to intercede for his people. He's aware, he's awake, he's watching you, he's with you. Does he care is the question. Do you care? Do you really love me? Do you really want to care for me despite what I've walked through? It says, then Jesus arose. He woke up. I love this. This kind of reminds me of my wife. In, in, in some ways, me as well with the kids. It's like, I'll sleep through anything, but it comes to the point where like the kids will wake me up. Because the one thing I'm, or like some sort of, obviously, like I'm not a liability to my family. If someone's breaking in my house, it's going to be okay. I'll hear them, okay? I have a dog, an alarm system, okay? No uh, jujitsu. Just kidding. I don't know any of that. Um, I don't actually know any of that. But anyway, um, notice the one thing that woke Jesus up. Isn't this so great? The storm didn't get Jesus' attention, but the cry of his people did. Isn't that so cool? That's what made him go, what? Like when you pray, do you know that God's listening? Do you know that he's waiting for you to call out to him? Do you know that he's there? Do you know that he's not moved? Do you know that his attention isn't being thrown around by the things that are happening in your life or this world? But did you know that when you call his name, his attention is immediately moved to you? His ears are attentive, the Bible says, to our prayer. So Jesus arises to those prayers, and notice what he does. He rebukes the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. He rebukes it, and the wind ceases, and there is a great calm. This is what Jesus does, and I want you to notice the response and the results. This is where we close. Jesus says to the disciples after he does this, Why are you so fearful in the storm? How is it that you have no faith? It says this, notice this, and they feared exceedingly. Isn't that interesting? He rebukes their fear, and then he leads them to greater fear. They feared exceedingly and said to one another, now notice what they're fearing now. They're not fearing the storm. They're fearing Jesus. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? By the way, this is what faith is, okay? Faith is fear in the right thing. Did you know that? That's what faith is. Some of us are lacking faith in God because we're fearing something else other than him. We're making it greater than him. 
You see, what, what God does with us is he doesn't remove fear from our lives. He properly places it upon himself as the greatest thing. He says, okay, take the fear, all that energy you're putting to be afraid of the circumstances, afraid of the outcome, afraid of this, that, and the other. Take that fear and just channel it towards reverence for me. And the fear of the Lord will be the beginning of wisdom. This is the fountain of life for your life. This is where fear is produced. This is true faith. True faith acknowledges and fears who God is above everything else that's around me. This is what's produced in the disciples as they walk through the storm. Faith is built. Faith has grown. Again, the number one thing that God is concerned with producing in our lives, the thing he's focused on, again, our development. So right now, as you kind of think about your own life, as you think about how your circumstances are developing, how your story is unfolding, the things that are surrounding you, I want you to stop for a second and just begin to look within and say, God, how are you developing my faith right now? What is it that you're seeking to produce in me? What, what sort of fear are you trying to produce in me? That's greater. That's greater than anything else I can fear. That's ultimately rooted in who you are. You know, there's that great saying, right? There's nothing to fear except fear itself. And that's actually not true. The only thing to fear is God himself. That's the truth. Fear isn't bad in of itself. The question is, what is your fear placed in? Is it paralyzing fear? Or can you, like the disciples, end up in this place where you get a bigger vision of who Jesus is with what you're walking through? I'll invite the worship team to come out. We'll close on that note. And I want us to be thinking about, as we close in this song, asking Jesus to give us faith, to believe in who he is. I want you to take that part of your heart that needs to trust God. Even the genuine questions that come along with the, with the storm, just take it right to him and say, God, where are you? This is what I'm feeling. Grow me. How, God, how are you using what I'm walking through to develop my confidence, my expectation, and my trust in who you are? God, would you increase the fear in my heart for you? Like the disciples, when I go through trials, I have a greater view of you. You're bigger than my storm, and I can trust you 